Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Human Behavior Show podcast. And thanks for those of you who've joined us. Um, we're going to be doing a 30 minutes with Dr. Ids, who is down in the audience. And we'll be breaking down the science of weight loss and also talking about Dr. Ids' journey to a humongous 1.3 million followers on TikTok and how that's been. He's someone who's really trying to give out preventive medicine education, which we don't see often by most doctors. So it's pretty unique. And I'm pretty excited to have be having him here, here on my podcast. We're, we're on like episode, um, you know, and nearly episode 30 now. So this has been going really well, getting experts across tech, medicine, uh, and psychology as well. So I've really enjoyed this. So Dr. It's welcome to the show. Really happy to have you here. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm really not familiar with these platforms. So it's great to, uh, to realize that there are big audiences elsewhere, not just on the main, the mainstream platforms that I'm aware of. So yeah, it's great. Yeah, we need to get you on more of these, actually. I think you should love on these. But I know I need, I've made you break down what you do. So can you tell everyone once again your background and what you're interested in and what you do? Yeah, so just again, um, just a quick little recap of what we discussed earlier. Um, yeah, so I went to study uh, medicine at the University of East Anglia uh, in Norwich in the UK. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm really a big fan of, of their kind of structure of their course because they're a very integrated approach in the sense of, you know, from week one of the first year, you're basically thrown in hospitals, you know, you go into the GP practices, family medicine, um, you know, you do live dissection on, on human bodies, you know, you do group work, you do lecture work. So, I think the framework of of those kind of styles of medical schools where it's not just lectures from day one kind of allows you to to be creative in your journey and in your in your field of interest essentially and um several years into my medical school journey I took time out um to do an extra master's degree in nutritional research specifically focusing on you know appraising research um you know, looking into the science of how to interpret, how to critique evidence, how to conduct research studies. Um, and this really kind of built my passion um, for, you know, nutritional research specifically, because nutrition was one of the fields in which I already had um, a large inclination into going towards uh, beyond medical school, really. And the reason why is because, you know, our diet and our our nutritional choices and our dietary choices are perhaps the single biggest modifiable lifestyle factor that we have available um, in the sense of things within our things within our control um, as humans you know diet is up there with you know one of the biggest things that we can change on a day to day basis which will then have the greatest impact on our health. And, you know, being in hospital and, you know, working with patients and working with other doctors, it's quite clear that, um, you know, nutritional therapies or education on preventative measures just just isn't really there or it's, it's not really strong enough um, as I would like to see it in practice. So kind of, you know, my aim with with all my videos and my content is to kind of bring awareness into the deeper kind of scientific dive around subject matter where we're not just focusing on medical interventions but we're focusing on how can we empower people and patients to actually take more control of their health you know through dietary choices exercise mental health uh, modifications and uh, things like that so yeah that's a little bit about what's going on i actually love that and um 
I certified in lifestyle medicine, which is kind of a branch of preventive medicine, looking at how we mm. can use, you know, relationships, um, nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress management to help optimize people's health and prevent disease. And Dr. It's super interesting how you took that route and really dived in with, you know, a master in nutritional um, science as well. Mm. And and you mentioned you, you have a publication that might be coming on mental health yes. as well. Yeah, so that's that's something that I um it was it was very tough. It was very tough because, you know, it's very rare to to have someone that conducts, you know, the data synthesis, the analysis, the writing, the, you know, the literature review of the topic beforehand, critiquing the previous evidence. And I essentially had to do it all by myself. And it was very tough. It was very hard. I had to learn, you know, higher level research statistics and using different software. And um, I had over a million data points, which I had to synthesize and analyze. And it was very, it was very hard. And essentially what the research paper is, it's looking at um, a large cohort of twins across the UK, about 17,000 twins, I think it may be even more now. Um, and I analyzed their kind of their dietary habits over many, many years. And I analyzed their mental health state using validated mental health questionnaires like, uh, you know, PHQ-9 and um, the HAD score, um, you know, things like that. And basically what I did was I ran some quite, some quite, um, complicated uh, analytical tests where I was looking at the association or the relationship between their total sugar intake um, and their risk of depression and their risk of worsening mental health. So that took about the good part of a year essentially to to conduct. And, you know, things have been so busy at the moment with with everything going on, especially with working at full time, you know, full time at the moment. Um so my plan is in the next, you know, six months or so to uh, refine my findings and my write-up and then to get that paper published because I worked very hard on it and it would be a shame to not have that for the general population to to read and also benefit from as well. That's actually really interesting and the kind of links between your know, In COVID, mental health became such mm -hmm. a big thing and we know how linked our physical health is to our mental health. I had a lot of guests talk about the microbiome and the gut brain connection. There's a lot we could go into as well. Mm. But I want to ask you before we dive into the science of weight loss, your TikTok journey, how did that start and how did you grow to such a big following? And 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 oh. what, what does TikTok mean to you? Yeah, no, it's very <laughs> that's I I always have fun answering this question because, you know, I was one of the people, you know, January first on the year literally last year, twenty twenty one, I I started my my very first video, right? And um I was always one of one of the people that thought, "Oh, TikTok is literally for, you know, teenage girls dancing and, you know, listening to music and there's just no benefit in TikTok and it's a child's app and all this kind of stuff." And when my friends, you know, who are were of a similar age to me, they were like, "Oh, no, now because COVID's happened and you're not able to you know, have your personal training clients or your nutrition, your nutrition clients in person. Why don't you start, you know, on something like TikTok and just just say the the information you want to say, but just put it out to the public? And I was like, nah, surely TikTok isn't for that. And then little did I know, after a couple of weeks of posting just random content, you know, a little bit of fun gym videos, kind of workout tutorials with the occasional nutritional kind of, you know, snippet in there about, you know, weight loss and the science behind nutrition. Um, I started gaining quite quite a bit of traction in the first month or so. I think it took me about 
four weeks to hit a thousand followers. Uh, and I was like, whoa, okay, this is, um, this is quite interesting. And then I carried on. And then four weeks after that, I hit about 10,000. And I was like, whoa, okay. And then literally month on month after that, it, it grew at around 80, 90,000 a month, um, pretty consistently to the point where literally on New Year's Day of the year just gone, 2022, I hit a million. So I can't believe it from, from January 1st, January 1st, I went from zero to a million. And, you know, that just showed me that the appetite for in-depth scientific information regarding, you know, nutrition, weight loss, um, you know, critiquing the research behind different topics, debunking, um, you know, lots of common misconceptions about health and fitness and nutrition. The appetite for it amongst the general population is it is really there. And I, I'm, I'm very surprised. Um, so, you know, you learn you learn something every day. And I, I had no idea TikTok was the place for that. And uh, clearly it is. I mean, congratulations. Hats off to you. I mean, your content definitely struck out to me because it's very consistent. And, you know, you have mm. that background of research and then you're speaking clearly. It, it, you, I mean, you did it really well. So, I mean, it's not only just TikTok's algorithm. It's a lot of, you know, work you put in and, and you, you hit the right format. And it suited you as well. So, yeah. I mean, similarly, Dr. Shah, he's a friend of mine in America. And he started, I think, probably just a bit earlier than you mm. and he's hit 10 million on tiktok he's a dermatologist and you know skincare went crazy on oh, TikTok as well. Yes. yes so i've had him on clubhouse and here and it was insane seeing his journey and seeing yours as well and you guys are reaching the millions which is insane and yeah that, the thing you know, the thing cool. the thing with the the thing with the dermatology stuff is um it's very it's very visually stimulating you know i feel like a lot of people love seeing you know, what can be achieved and the different therapies that people are suggesting. And yeah, I like, I like the skincare stuff. It's very interesting. Indeed. <laughs> Compliments yeah. well. So, I mean, that's an incredible journey and in, in that you've, you know, you've got such a big following on TikTok. And I guess you started on TikTok when I started on Clubhouse and from here yes. it became a thing with the growth. And I was like, okay, people want to hear about, you know, educated on this stuff and then you just carry on. So, Let's get on to the main thing. I think a lot of the audience will be interested to kind of hear about weight loss. Mm. Interestingly, I've actually, because I mean, life gets tough, especially I'm a, uh, I mean, I was in the NHS like you um, a few mm. years ago, and now I'm kind of completely in tech um, and tech startups and um, being an entrepreneur, taking yes. a toll on your health and, and weight gain as well. And I mean, I had such a stringent gym routine and a diet that I was someone who hadn't drank a soda for eight years, and I was known to just be so, so healthy. And it's mm. funny because I was doing all these talks on Clubhouse and I fell off the rails of my health probably this <laughs> year because it's funny, it's ironic because I talk about, my brother's like, don't you talk about sleep? Are you a sleep doctor? But you're not sleeping. And I'm like, yeah, it's ironic because I didn't think it would happen to me. 10 years, so since 18 to 28, mm. I was like one of the healthiest people in terms of what I did. Mm. Then lockdown happened and I got so busy with like transitioning and doing work and I got the dopamine hits of, you know, getting multiple tech startups yes. and doing all that, that... Even knowing the knowledge, I just could not follow through on my habits. I, and once they went, I was like, okay, I'm going to get back next month. Okay, guys. And I tried and, and literally I'm at the point now where I'm like, okay, I've gained a few pounds and I'm not, you know, yes. I, I would say I've gained about 20 pounds in two years, uh, mm. 20, 25 pounds. Uh, some of it muscle because I was trying to gain muscle, but a lot of it fat as well. So now mm. I am literally on that path that I'm going to lose the weight. Um, and, and I've got like a, uh, like motivated to literally start this month, you know? So we want to know, from you kind of can break down um, weight loss. What, what are some of the myths? What are, what are some of the strategies? Why do we gain fat? Um, kind of love mm. to hear that from you. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's a very that's a very broad question, and I could literally talk about this for probably days, not even hours. Um, so yeah, I mean just just a quick little funny anecdote. Uh, you were saying that you know things things fell off a little bit for you. The irony is that sim- it's it's kind of been similar for me as well, really, because you know when my time and effort has gone into you know, content creating and, and working on other things that I'm working on at the moment, kind of big things that will hopefully pave the way for my future, you know, and also trying to balance hospital work and various things like that. Um, I've also, you know, taken a backseat with my my exercise habits, my, my gym routine. I've noticed I've got, you know, substantially weaker. Um, you know, I'm just not prioritizing my health. You know, like my sleep is is also taking a bit of a hit as well because I'll be up late at night you know, either writing something, researching something, you know, planning the next week's worth of things. Um, So, yeah, I mean, these, these, I think, and I want to, I want to tie this into kind of the topic we're talking about today. In a similar sense, weight loss or managing our weight, it, it happens in a very similar fashion as well. So in the same way in which I'm describing, you know, things have peaks and troughs. Yeah, we have, we have ups and downs with everything. And it's very unrealistic to look at a topic like, you know, weight loss or weight gain or obesity and expect people to have a linear journey. That is the first key point I want to get I want to get across is that something as complicated as, you know, adipose tissue or losing weight or or gaining weight it's not as simple as just saying, okay, I'm going to lose a pound a week and I'm going to be at my goal weight in, you know, six months time. That is just not how it works. And the body is very intelligent. It's very smart. And you will have peaks and troughs in your success, in your failures. There will be things that will, will come up which you maybe weren't aware of in terms of your, you know, hurdles, your obstacles. So, you know, it's it's a very interesting topic and we need to kind of dissect what are some of the key principles that we need to understand when it comes to losing weight and how can we apply that to our to our everyday life. So, you know, I think it would be a good idea just to mention that, you know, weight loss is as a direct result of what everyone knows as a calorie deficit. Yeah, we hear that every day, every single video talks about calorie deficits. However, I don't really think people understand what a calorie deficit actually is, because I've heard often the argument of, oh, it's not all about calories in, calories out. Right. Have you have you also heard that? Have you also heard people say, you know, calories in, calories out is not is not the whole picture? Yeah, yeah, I've definitely heard that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So so that really gets to me because. The fundamentals of thermodynamics, literally, you cannot create energy out of nothing. You cannot store fat out of nothing. You can't store energy out of nothing. So by definition, if you are losing weight, then the calories you are expending from your body, um, whether it's from your basal metabolic rate, whether it's from your organs, just living, functioning, breathing, your brain function, whether whether it's from your movement or your fidgeting in your daytime, whether it's from your gym sessions or whether it's from the digestion that occurs, or, you know, hormones as well. Hormones do also play a role. They They are the factors that determine your calories outside of the equation, right? And the calories inside of the equation comes down to how much you eat and how much you drink in the form of liquid calories. So 
in order to lose weight, what we have to achieve is we need to, in, we don't need to increase, but we need to have a net calorie burn that exceeds our calorie intake. And that is what's called a calorie deficit. Okay. And many people will argue that that is not the whole picture. But the problem with this is, is that they don't, or they're not realizing that all of the factors that they are talking about when it comes to hormones, when it comes to sleep or stress or cortisol levels or, you know, um, even PCOS or insulin resistance or any of these conditions or eating too many carbs or sugars, whatever. They need to understand that all of these factors are part of the calories in, calories out equation. So the fundamental law is that you need to burn more calories, that nothing will ever change that. Anyone that's ever lost weight in the history of weight loss, the history of obesity, has lost weight because they are in a calorie deficit. That is not taking away the fact that there are hurdles and there are obstacles. Of course, there are hurdles, there are obstacles. And that that, that is something that we can discuss for days on end, right? But that is the fundamental principle that you need to burn more calories than you intake. And how we achieve that, now the method by which we achieve it can be done via any which way you want. It doesn't matter. You can have the most extreme method. If you want to be a carnivore and just eat meat, you can do that. But the reason why you've lost weight on it is because you are decreasing your calorie intake and you're increasing your calorie burn. Okay. And all of these methods, whether it's intermittent fasting, the keto diet, people becoming vegetarian or vegan, people, you know, doing extended periods of fast, you know, liquid diets, water diets. I've seen the most ridiculous things, you know, people have said, oh, you know, every month you should not eat for five days. And it's like, sorry, what? Not eat for five whole days in a row. <laughs> like, uh, how is that? <laughs> how is something like that going to be enjoyable for anyone, really? Um you know, it's it's just not even safe or, or, or anything. But the point is, is that there are many, many methods and ways to achieve what it is you want to achieve. But whether it's sustainable, whether it's the most appropriate, whether it's the safest for you, you know, these are all factors that are important and they will be individualized. That's why you'll see across my content that I don't preach for a certain uh, you know, type of diet or a certain style of eating or or intermittent fasting or, you know, um, specific dietary habits, you won't see me say this is the best way. This is the this is what I think you should do. Right. You will simply see me present the evidence for all of these dietary methods. And I try my best to objectively review them um, and present to you the evidence so you can then make an informed decision based on the information that I've provided. So, you know, informed consent and, in you know, making an informed decision is something really important because what a lot of creators do and what a lot of people that advocate for different dietary patterns do is they will clearly have a bias when it comes to the information that they are presenting, right? So you look at people that, you know, promote the keto diet or they promote the carnivore diet or they promote intermittent fasting as the most superior way to lose weight or to, you know, improve your health. What they are doing is they're taking um, a subset of evidence and they are basically extrapolating the data to fit their narrative or to fit their bias or something that will line their pockets with their business, right? 
And that's very disingenuous. It's, it's entirely unprofessional. And I think it points to their ignorance with how scientific evidence works, because if you have a good method of appraising the literature out there, you can then have a look for yourself and you can see that actually calling one method superior over another method is very muddy waters and it's very dangerous territory because you need to understand that energy energy balance is going to be the key fundamental issue at play and the method that you that the method that you kind of instill in your life which then achieves that that net energy balance in your favor that is going to be individualized you can't you can't just say to a whole population okay the keto diet is the best way to lose weight so that's the issue i have with a lot of these bigger you know creators you know these pseudo scientists that will advocate for a specific pattern i have no issue if you want to advise people to do a specific type of dietary pattern the issue i have is when you make unsubstantiated claims by saying that one way is more superior to another way and that is why I try my best to, to remain objective, provide the evidence so that you have all of the information out there regarding a topic and whether you want to partake in it is completely up to you. So that's my whole philosophy behind it. I love that philosophy, actually, Dr. Is, and, and you broke it down and you, you would hate um, some of the Silicon Valley people who always are switching diets and carnivore diets and God knows what diet mm. um, and, you know, claims which aren't sometimes medically um sound and you're right yeah calories in and out you you explained it brilliantly that energy balance so we had a few questions um that i promised i'd ask um so what is the most efficient way in terms of time to lose weight so what is the easiest way for us to cut calories in terms of diet and in terms of physical activity um could, could you tell us about that and and what is the safest mm-hmm. amount of, of fat or weight to lose um and how quickly can we do okay. that okay Okay, good questions, good questions. So the first one is a very interesting one. So are you talking about practical strategies to reduce calorie intake? Okay, fine. So we've got practical, okay, fine. So first we'll discuss some practical strategies. Then let's discuss the calories outside in terms of movement, physical activity, because there's an interesting uh, concept I want to discuss, which is called the constrained energy model, um, which... um, we can we can discuss in 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 a few minutes okay and then we'll go on to the one after that okay so practical strategies with regards to reducing calorie intake i think if i had to put my my you know my finger on the single best thing that we can do generally speaking just as a broad practical tip i think one of the main issues in the western society and the western kind of food environment and marketplace these days is the ultra processing of food so i don't it doesn't matter what what which kind of um ingredients or foods these come from you know you you have you have plant alternatives you have you know highly processed or ultra processed uh veggie foods you've got ultra processed meat foods ultra processed savory snacks sweet snacks whatever so what i mean by ultra processing is um, you know, to, to cause to call a food processed, you know, you could argue that a sliced apple is also processed because you've taken a whole food, you've done something to it, and then you're consuming it. So the process of slicing an apple is also processed. But what I mean by ultra processing, I mean things that are highly refined and they're taken, they 
they pretty much no longer resemble the initial food that that the ingredients come from right so you look at these you know uh plant-based alternatives which are a combination of you know peas and beans and you know quinoa and different types of grains and it's all put into a mushy patty and then you know you grill it and then you eat it right so that that would be an example of ultra processing of food and i think reducing our intake of ultra processed foods um is a very very simple yet effective strategy to having a net positive impact on our overall calorie intake and this is for several reasons this has even been demonstrated in um many control studies for example i think kevin hall did one um i think about 6 7 years ago where he put people on a ultra processed diet versus a minimally processed diet and he advised them to you know uh have similar amounts of food up, i believe and in a kind of free living environment where they said you know eat as as much as would fill you up and would satisfy you essentially what happened was the people that were on the ultra processed diets that didn't really differ in terms of their macronutrient consumption so in terms of their protein fat and carbohydrate intake what they found was that the ultra processed group ate on average 550 something calories more um than the group that was on the minimally refined pro- uh the minimally processed diet and that just shows you that in order to reach satisfaction um it takes a lot more calories if the majority of your food is coming from ultra processed foods so that is a very very simple strategy because the satiation effects or the satiety effects of ultra processed foods aren't very great number one and there's this interesting theory um in psychology about you know the golden ratio of of food and it's it's talking about kind of you know food companies have used this specific uh ratio of fat to carbohydrate intake um where they've kind of realized that having a specific ratio in our foods that would make people want to eat more and it would it would make people want to crave these types of hyper palatable foods right and these are the foods that are high in you know sugars and fats So you look at things like you know crispy cream donuts for you know for example if you take a box of you know six crispy cream donuts and you give it to someone who's very very hungry and loves those kind of foods yeah they would not have a problem eating the entire pack right and that entire pack of donuts will be something like 2 3000 calories that's going to be more than your average daily intake but the point is is that food companies are so intelligent and they are so on point with how they market their food and how they market you know um the manufacturers and what ingredients to put in the food that they know that they can stimulate certain food reward centers in the brain which you know make us want more of that type of food and you only really get that in foods that are ultra processed and hyper palatable and this is a type of um argument that i see done by a lot of people saying oh sugar is addictive you know we should limit our sugar intake but actually no if sugar was addictive we would see people just downing you know spoonfuls of sucrose table sugar you don't see anyone just going around munching table sugar like as if it's going to fulfill their craving <laughs> so you need to people need to understand that it's it's the combination of nutrients within a food 
that make it hyper palatable. And that is what food manufacturers are really banking on in terms of this ultra processing where they can literally hand pick what goes into different foods. And then that would then indirectly, you know, encourage us to consume more of those foods. So linking back to our original point, you know, if there was one, you know, bit of practical advice that I could give someone is it would be to limit our consumption of ultra processed foods and to, you know, perhaps um, uh, focus on when we're grocery shopping, focus on, you know, the fresh food, uh, fruit and vegetable aisles, you know, um, lots of nice, even canned foods like canned beans and canned fruits as well. They're, they're also perfectly fine. And you've got things like, you know, lean meats, you know, fibrous veggies, um, whole grains, legumes, and things like that. So I think that's probably the key or one of the key practical elements that I would suggest to help manage our calories in side of the equation. Um, then we've got the practical steps as to how to optimize our calories outside of the equation. And this is why I wanted to quickly just discuss something called the constrained energy model um, which basically dictates or it's it's the theory that when it's the theory that kind of our bodies want to burn a set amount of calories and our body tries to achieve homeostasis at all times right so when you take someone who is massively sedentary and doesn't really move much yeah their body will be used to burning a set number of calories then when you ask that person to go for, you know, why don't you start jogging and why don't you start going for a nice jog every day and probably, you know, do five kilometers, do 10 kilometers, whatever. Theoretically or hypothetically, you would probably argue that, okay, well, this should increase the amount of calories we burn by, you know, 600, 700 calories, right? So that means I should be losing about a pound a week if 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 the only thing I change is by, you know, going for a half an hour jog every day. But it's not as simple as that because the body tries to compensate in other areas. So even if you do go for a jog, you know, typically you might feel tired afterwards, right? So when you feel tired afterwards, then that means you're less likely to move around as much as you know, before the run in the daytime. So say if you were, you know, doing chores around your house, you were, you know, fidgeting at your desk, you were doing lots of hand gestures, you were moving around, maybe hoovering, doing whatever. After you go for your run, you know, are you going to be as motivated to do those things? Are you going to be as energized to carry on the same movement that you were doing beforehand? Obviously not, because you're going to be a bit tired. So that is one example in which our body tries to compensate when we increase our energy expenditure um, to then make the point that even if we do burn 600 calories from that run, that won't have a net 600 calorie effect on our energy balance equation. Because what can also happen is our body can ramp up our appetite cues as well. So we might feel more hungry. We might crave more hyper palatable foods, such as the foods that I was talking about earlier. Um, so we, our, our body tries to offset the increase in calorie expenditure um, by compensating via other mechanisms, whether it's reduced movement, whether it's, you know, increased cravings to get us to eat more food. And that's why control studies have shown that roughly 
um, you know, energy expenditure is often compensated for by around 30 to 40 percent of energy. So that means, generally speaking, if we were to apply that to a general population, um, if we went on a 500 uh, calorie burning run, then we would probably, you know, compensate around 150, 200 calories worth of that run. So we would only be netting a positive 300 calorie increase, um, increased energy expenditure. So that's a very interesting point there. So I think some, some very practical ways to reduce how much our body compensates when it comes to our movement would be to perhaps not kill ourselves in the gym. So if we go to the gym, it's probably not a good idea to go really, really, really hard to the point where you're absolutely pooped and you're drenched in sweat and you can't even think about doing another set. Because what's going to happen? Your body, your, your body is likely going to increase your cravings. It's going to increase your appetite and you're just going to slouch on the sofa or go to bed, right? So in order to mitigate some of the compensatory mechanisms we have, it's probably a good idea to have a productive workout or a productive run but don't kill yourself off. You know, make sure you have some energy in the, in the tank left. Because at the end of the day, it's not what you can achieve in one day. It's, it's what you can do consistently that builds good habits over time. So I think that's a very key point to take away from this is that exercise is a very, very useful tool to help us lose weight, to help us manage our health, to improve lots of different health outcomes, health markers, right? But it's probably not wise to go over and beyond our body's limits. So don't kill yourself off in the gym. Don't do 40 sets of chest press whenever you go and train your chest. Yeah. Don't go for um, a 10 mile, don't go for a 10 kilometer run when you're only used to doing five kilometers. Yeah. These are things that would not perhaps work well in the short term and could actually hinder your goals. You might, you know, I know some I've, I've, I've worked with some patients and some clients that actually, you know, when they increase their calorie, uh, when they increase their movement, they actually end up gaining weight because their compensatory mechanisms make them eat more than the actual benefit you're getting from that exercise. So, yeah. So I think that kind of ties nicely into the constrained energy model. Um, it's basically pioneered by Ponza, um, very famous uh, papers that have come out with regards to this uh, this model. So yeah, I found that really interesting, Doctor Ed, and thanks for sharing that. You explained that beautifully, actually, um, and and why actually a lot of people say, "Oh, we started working out and now we've gained weight," and they give up working <laughs> out. What was the point of that? <laughs> we killed ourselves and we gained more weight. So. I think you've definitely exactly. explained that. Yeah, exactly. I think I think um it's just it's just generally a good, you know, um tactic just to to kind of always have some energy in the tank and to always work within your means and within your capacity because you know, at the end of the day, it also it also has an impact on our adherence and our motivation. You know, I've heard of many many tales of of these personal trainers, you know, someone looking to get a personal trainer and what they do is the personal trainers absolutely kill these clients in the gym. They they make them go all out and they're sweating and they're on the floor and their legs are shaking. But it's like, think about what you're doing to this person's motivation. You know, may, yeah, fair enough that they might enjoy the new stimulus for a few weeks. But, you know, look a couple months down the line. Are they really going to want to spend their evenings 
after after a stressful day at work you know wanting to go to a personal trainer that's shouting at them and wanting to wanting to absolutely feel that burn and just kill their body off no of course not their motivation is going to dip so not only does it have an impact on our compensatory mechanisms it also has an impact on our motivation and adherence to a lifestyle intervention so i think that's another psychological aspect we need to take into account is that you know always working within our our limits and our means and making slow and steady progressions to increase our activity is always a sensible thing to do so if you're someone that averages you know 4000 steps a day you know perhaps for the next few weeks why don't you make it 5 and 1/2 or make it 6000 steps a day don't go oh you know what i'm going to go i'm going to do 15000 steps a day for the next 2 weeks and watch me lose you know 5 pounds oh yeah okay fine you might you might have the motivation to do that for 2 weeks but i'm telling you now in 2 months time you're going to be saying something different so <laughs> you know whereas if you slowly <laughs> slowly increased and slowly implemented some realistic goals i think that's just simple things like that just make the world of difference so doctor if you recommend um things like my fitness pal or the apple watch for people to mm. track calories well, what are your take on that okay tracking calories is a very interesting topic um Okay, I will say off the bat that it isn't for everyone. Tracking calories can be useful for some people. Now, I think there's a fine balance to be had here between, you know, becoming overly obsessive with everything on your plate versus being responsible and being conscious of what it is you're eating, right? I think it's perfectly acceptable to be conscious, to think about your meal balance, to think about to think about you know roughly how many calories am i having here okay fair enough maybe i've gone a little bit too far okay maybe for dinner i might focus on some whole grains some veggies some fruits some lean proteins and perhaps try to decrease my calories there i think things like that are perfectly acceptable and perfectly v- valid when it comes to monitoring and managing our weight you know there's plenty of research you know um whether it's from the national weight uh, re- re- registry you know there's the largest research um on people that have successfully lost weight and kept and, and also kept it off there's also lots of uh, systematic reviews meta analyses on the effectiveness of you know keeping food diaries to basically hold yourself accountable and that is perfectly fine that isn't what i have an issue with what i have an issue with is people becoming so obsessed with every little thing on their plate to the point where their meals just start becoming numbers right i think that's a very dangerous path to go down because when you start to look at your food as a number and not actually as nutrition or something to sustain your body then that could potentially exacerbate people that have got issues with their relationship with food and it could also worsen their relationship with food and it could also perhaps have a negative spiral effect on their health you know perhaps they might become overly obsessive with you know maintaining a skinny frame or a slim frame and we see this a lot really in the western world you know i think social media has had a massive part to play in it and also the standards of beauty have also played a part in it as well um but i think you know things like my fitness pal tracking your calories they can be a useful tool 100% but you know like myself and like many other people there are principles that you can put in place which allow you to manage your weight and lose weight effectively that that don't come from tracking your calories so you know my clients 
that I work with now and have always worked with, I have never even asked them or encouraged them to track their calories, really. The only people that do are the ones that want to do it and have suggested it to me. So, you know, I think it's important to, um, to remember that every person will have a tailored individualized strategy that works best for them. You know, I think as clinicians and as, you know, professionals, health professionals, dietitians, whatever, I think we need to be aware not to, um, you know, force habits on people where it might end up causing more harm than it does good. So I think bringing up the topic of tracking calories is perfectly fine. But the moment you get a hesitation or, you know, the moment you recognize some potential risk factors in the individual person or patient, then I think it's best to, you know, perhaps work on the practical steps rather than the the issue of tracking calories through, you know, something like MyFitnessPal. And the other thing with MyFitnessPal and other apps like that is they they massively misrepresent, you know, your calorie intake or your estimated calorie intake um, for a given weight or for a given type of person. You know, if if you put in, you know, you're a five foot five female weighing, you know, 75 kilograms, it will tell you something stupid like you need, you know, 1100 calories a day to lose weight. And it's just like, it's just like, okay, right. Just, <laughs> I try to tell everyone not to use those kind of apps for um, tracking the amount of calories to eat. But you can use it for things like tracking how much you are eating throughout, you know, the ingredients or the barcodes on your food and uh, other things like that. So, yeah. I think that's brilliant advice. And I think that can help a lot of people. So finally, Doctor, it's really great having you here to do a breakdown of, of weight loss for us. And we have so much more to talk about and discuss. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to definitely be getting you back on uh, Clubhouse. We'll be doing Rooms there. This is kind of a podcast intro things because um, I think it'd be super useful for so many people. Yeah, sounds um, good. So finally, finally, yeah. before we ask where people can follow you, um, what is what is what is a sensible amount of time or, or a fast time for people to lose weight? Say you want to oh, lose, yes, yeah. you know, and how much to lose because people want to lose in two months, three months. Um, what is your take on that? Because I've heard, for example, weight loss across six months. Really, you have to maintain weight loss for two years for it to be sustainable. Mm. Otherwise, most people end up gaining that weight back pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very, very interesting. Um, so off the bat, I'd like to say that there is a place, there is a place for initial rapid weight loss, okay? That's the first thing I would say. And the reason for that is, for several reasons, There's, there was a, a very good, I think, if I can remember now off the top of my head, um, I think it's Gibson et al. or Alice, Alice Gibson et al., maybe 2017, 2018. There was a nice literature review um, a few years ago that highlights actually the place that initial rapid weight loss can have in people's adherence and in people's motivation, right? So for, let's, let's take the example of, you know, someone who weighs 130 kilograms, you know, when, uh, you know, a healthy BMI range might suggest they should be around 80, right? So they're, they're you know, very, very overweight. In people like that, where you put them on a dietary intervention where they are losing substantial amounts of weight every week. So for example, a kilogram or even two kilograms. Yeah. Some people can, can quite easily do that for a good few months. And the reason for that is, is because, you know, number one, they have a lot of um, excess energy in the form of adipose tissue. 
So, you know, perhaps they might not feel the effects of such a restrictive diet so early on. And what that does for people's motivation is pretty, is pretty, um, you know, crucial because when you have someone that's so overweight, it will take a long time to see physical changes in their appearance, right? Because they've got so much weight. So in people like that, where you do a slow, a very slow and steady approach to weight loss, after a few weeks that they're, they're still not going to see anything and they're not going to notice any difference. So people might lose motivation and say, oh, you know, the, it's not working and blah, blah, blah. So I think in a very specific subset of the population, initial rapid weight loss can actually serve a very, very useful um, practical step and a practical tool, right? But I would only recommend that under medical supervision by a doctor, by a dietitian, not by people that aren't me medically qualified, okay? Because rapid weight loss and, so, you know, severe restriction of very low-calorie diets, you know, they have their own side effects. And, you know, all the controlled evidence shows that although it does work, especially for um, type 2 diabetes and other conditions like that, you know, fatty liver disease, it does work, but you need to be careful and it needs to be supervised, okay? So that's the first thing I would say, that there is a place for initial rapid weight loss. Initial only, to key point. Okay. Um, now, when it comes to general population advice, I would say that it is relatively sustainable to probably restrict your calorie intake from normal by up to, you know, five, six, seven hundred calories a day, um, which would theoretically equate to around one, one and a half pounds a week you know, sometimes up to two pounds if, if you also increase your energy expenditure to a good amount. Um, I would recommend that that is a pretty realistic, a pretty sensible um, general rule of thumb to aim for. A pound, you know, a pound to a pound and a half, or even in some cases, two pound a week is generally very sensible. Now, the thing with sustainability and the thing with, you know, it needs to be, you know, sustainable for a good, you know, a few months and a good couple of years. Um, the issue with statistics like that is you have, you know, especially from the anti-diet community and, you know, the, uh, you know, a lot of, there's a community of dietitians that are very anti-diet and lots of health coaches and even doctors now. I've had, I've had several, you know, discussions and quite heated discussions with doctors that, that are very anti-diet and they, and they come out with the argument of, oh, um, you know, the body isn't designed to lose weight, you know, 95% of diets fail. And uh, there's just no point, you know, you're better off staying the same uh, obese weight and just focusing on healthful behaviors. And I just say to them, look, that is not, you're not representing the totality of evidence, you are doing something called cherry picking and also misrepresenting the evidence. So that 95% statistic, have you have you heard of that statistic, by the way? The ninety five percent of diets diets fail. Yes, 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 yes. Right. So that literally comes from the nineteen fifties, yeah, where it was an isolated study where they took a hundred people and they said, okay, here is a diet. You go off and you lose weight, okay, and then see what happens. Right. So imagine you tell a hundred people, okay, I want you to do this, this, and this, and then come back to me and then see what happens. Right. Of course, the majority of them are going to fail, 
right? They just, <laughs> all they did was tell them to do something, send them off on their way. They gave them no support, no thorough education, no practical strategies. And they told them, okay, let's see whether you can lose weight or not. Okay. And also what happened was they found that, okay, fair enough, 95% of them didn't, didn't manage anything at all. Um, but we need to understand what is the definition of a successful diet. We need to define it properly. What the definition should be is that, you know, what I think people often um, attribute dietary success to, they often say things like, um, oh, you know, I want to get back to my weight when I was 25 years old, you know, before I had kids. Okay, right. If, if that is your definition of success, then I'm sorry to tell you, that life just isn't that fair and you've got a lot more of responsibility now and chances are the vast majority of you will fail at that yeah that is that is out of the question you're not going to get back to your pre-responsibility life body yeah but what the definition of success should be is how much weight loss do we need to see clinically meaningful improvements in health and we know now from plenty of randomized control trials plenty of literature reviews you know critiquing this evidence has even been one recently in 2021 which shows that even as little as 2.5 percent of weight loss can improve glycemic markers in those that are insulin resistant 2.5 percent that is literally nothing right for a lot of people that is going to be just a few kilograms maybe you know six seven pounds yeah so even just 2.5 percent weight loss can see meaningful improvements in their hba1c fasting insulin fasting blood glucose and then when we look at things like cardiovascular disease then we're looking at around five to ten percent of weight loss if we look at things like asthma management then you've got about ten percent as well and if you look at things like you know sleep apnea then you're looking at around maybe you know 10 to 15 percent so how much weight loss do we need to see meaningful improvements in health and that's literally as little as five to ten percent of weight loss so for a lot of people, that won't be more than, you know, maybe 15, 20 pounds for a lot of people, you know, that are overweight. So I think if we redefine what success is, and if we look at weight loss as not to get back to our, you know, the peak physical condition that we were once in, but we should look at weight loss as a means to improve our health. So if we redefine what successful dieting means, then there's plenty of evidence showing that, you know, sustainable long-term weight loss, you know, the famous um, the famous study, uh, the Look Ahead trial in 2014, I think it was, which, you know, took 5,000 people with uh, type 2 diabetes and they gave them educational advice, you know, dietitian support, you know, they gave them proper education and proper practical steps to, you know, achieve weight loss. They found that, you know, 50% of them lost 5% or more of their weight and we know that is clinically meaningful, especially in diabetes. And a quarter of them lost more than 10% of their weight. 10% is no joke. Like that, that's, that's a lot of weight, right? Um, so, you know, they showed that more than a quarter of them lost more than 10%. And they kept that weight off for more than eight years. Eight years is a long time. And in that time, you know, the majority of those people would have substantially improved their health. So I think when people, especially the anti-diet community, when they frame dieting in the way that we've talked about, I, it just, it's just not, it's not a scientific, you know, framework to set in place. It's not wise to tell people that there's no point losing weight, you're just going to fail. 
because you need to be specific in your definition. So I think that a sustainable approach is something like around one to two pounds a week. You know, there is a place for rapid initial weight loss under medical supervision, but I wouldn't recommend that for the general population unless they have support from a, from a medical professional or a dietitian. And I think dieting and success rates and, you know, sustainability, I think we need to look at reframing it in a way that is helpful for people where we acknowledge the harmful impacts that obesity carries and the risks associated with it. But at the same time, we're not making people feel like idiots and making them feel bad and, you know, fat shaming people that I just don't have. I don't have any sympathy for anyone that just, you know, calls, um, you know, that is particularly mean or particularly um, has a hostile approach to people that are overweight. You know, obesity is super complex, multifaceted, you know, issue and disease. And we need to be very sensitive as to how we approach people that are struggling with these things. Dr. Is, I, I love that. You're so passionate about the subject. It really shines through when you speak. And that's it. I mean, uh, there's no space for people to be mean to people because there's so many different circumstances yeah. that people have, as you said, kind of, you know, uh, we know demographically people more likely to get obese may have certain um, unfavoring lifestyle yeah. circumstances, finances, etc., unemployment, a lot of that goes hand exactly. in hand, right? So I think that's a crucial point you did at the end. And yeah, I loved what you've explained and, and you've done it so scientifically as well, but so palatably so everyone can understand so we'll definitely get you back on so i want to know where can people follow you where can they hear more about um yeah yeah so um yeah my main my main platforms right now um i'm aiming to expand that soon but my main platforms will be on tiktok um at dr underscore ids so dr underscore idz that is the same on tiktok as it is on instagram as well i've recently started my instagram this year um, I started it in January this year and I started my Instagram last year. So I'm a little bit behind on the Instagram journey, but um slowly, slowly building up an audience there as well. Um, they're the main two platforms and also uh, keep posted because I'll be coming out with a lot of exciting things in a few coming months as well. I'm excited for that. Look forward to collaborating with you as well. So we'll touch base off podcast guy uh, is following on TikTok and how he's grown it and how he is sharing preventative medicine with the world so it's been brilliant guys and you can follow this on spotify and apple Podcasts. it'll be available as a podcast it's been super insightful so i'd encourage everyone to give a listen and also share dr eds it's been a pleasure thank you so much i look forward to connecting with you offline thank you for having me thank you very much bye everyone